Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today for our year in review of Russia's war on Ukraine and how what happened this year will shape 2024 are Dr. Eugene Rumer, the director of the Russia and Eurasia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He also served as a former national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia on the National Intelligence Council. Uh, he is also a good friend. Uh, and Sam Bendet of uh, the Crack Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses. He's one of the world's leading experts on Russian military capabilities, uh, especially its unmanned ones. He's also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, as well as the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And he's also a regular to help us understand uh, Russian capabilities and how they've been developing uh, during the course of this war. And he joins us every Monday. Uh, Eugene and Sam, great to have you both uh, on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Good to be back, Vago. Great to be back, Vago. Uh, indeed, an absolute pleasure. And Eugene, it's been too long. So thanks so much for making time uh, for us. Uh, Sam, thanks very much for uh, supporting us uh, over the course of the entire year. Eugene, start us off. It's been a busy year uh, as uh, uh, this war uh, has continued. Many twists and turns, a lot of false narratives, right? You know, Putin is vulnerable. He's about to collapse. The sanctions will be devastating. Uh, walk us through what you thought were the biggest themes or stories of the year that are actually going to be shaping the coming year? What are, what are the most important things that popped out at you, whether they were big things or little things? Well, on the whole, the big thing, I believe, is that uh, Russia has done quite well and Putin has done quite well. Oh, let's put it this way, nowhere near as badly as was predicted at the beginning of the year. The Ukrainian offensive did not deliver what it was advertised by many in Washington, perhaps more so than in Kiev, what it was expected to do. Uh, the Russian economy did not collapse. Uh, sanctions uh, clearly are working up to a point, but sanctions are not a fire and forget kind of thing. So enforcement continues to be a challenge as Russia continues to find new ways to evade them. And, uh, you know, uh, the international community is not as is not as united uh, in its support for Ukraine as we'd like it to see, uh, would like it to be. And, um, you know, support in the U.S., in, 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 in the core and a constituency for Ukraine in the United States and in Europe uh, is not uh, what we'd like it to be. So on the whole, I think Putin is looking back at uh, this past year and probably thinks Things are looking okay. And you think that's what's driving him to say, hey, actually, I'm winning, uh, which is what he said uh, last week in his big year-end address where uh, he feels quite positive about it. And we've always said, I think you said, uh, told us, you know, in the very beginning of this, he is going to, you know, he's taking a long-term strategy and to, to wait us out. Do you think that, uh, that, that's, that that's exactly how he's seeing it at this point as well? I believe, yes. Uh, you know, uh, the regime didn't collapse. You remember the Prigozhin affair when everybody said, oh, this is the end of Putin, this is the end of Russia. Well, that one crack in the regime didn't materialize. The Russian defense industry is turning out stuff. Um, you know, uh, they're, uh, they're, 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 I, I think they're doing okay. It's, it's not a, it's, it's, it's not, you know, the sky is not falling. Uh, Sam, from your standpoint, you've uh, joined us 
uh, you know, every every week uh, with uh, your take both on capabilities and, and things that have been happening on the Russia scene. If you were going to summarize what the key events this year were, what were the ones uh, that you would uh, highlight? But I would absolutely agree with Eugene that the Prigozhin Rebellion was a significant event, but it didn't necessarily do nearly as much damage as uh, was probably predicted. It in many ways it probably strengthened Putin's regime and the military. From the capability standpoint, uh, Russia started the war with uh, large-scale defenses along the entire line, and those defenses have held the Ukrainian counteroffensive. This was the year of the drone in many ways and in definitely more ways than one. This is probably the year of the FPV drone, uh, the capability we discussed every Monday. And uh, we uh, observed how the Russian military slowly but surely caught up to the Ukrainian capabilities to the extent that Ukraine is now concerned that Russia is fielding more FPV drones and Russian drone capabilities actually are growing by leaps and bounds. This is also the year of infantry assaults. Uh, certainly the Wagner group and the Russian military have demonstrated that they can spare no soldiers and no human lives in order to achieve however limited certain object certain objectives are. And uh, the goal here, as Eugene has indicated, is to wear down the Ukrainians, wear down the Western support for Ukraine. So uh, Russia hasn't necessarily gained much in fact, it did suffer significant losses and even battlefield humiliations, but it didn't necessarily change the shape of the front. It's still very much static, as indicated by the Ukrainians. And next year promises to be a very consequential one because of uh, these developments. Uh, I should point out its its first person view is FPV drone for the handful of people who don't uh, know that uh, what what that is that you can actually see what the drone is seeing in order to be ex execute whether it's a strike a resupply uh, or or just a, a, a reconnaissance mission. Um, Eugene, Luckily, if I you, may, uh, yeah, go ahead, please. You know, it occurs to me that Putin prides himself on being a student of history and quite a amateur historian himself, as we know from his infamous article, for example, about Ukraine published in 2021. And, you know, he can probably console himself by thinking that uh, Russian wars don't begin well. It did not begin well in 1812 when Napoleon invaded Russia, did not begin well in 1941 when Hitler invaded Russia. And now he's recast this war as um, as, as, as a war being waged against Russia by the entire Western coalition, not just Ukraine. Ukraine is just a tool and the springboard for uh, this Western aggression against Russia. So he can probably tell himself that, look, uh, we're doing okay. And right. he's looking to 2024 as uh, perhaps not a bad year. He will probably be reelected. Uh, does anybody want to take that bet? I bet anyone a dollar. <laughs> and that he is looking to November of next year when he hopes that uh, Donald Trump will be reelected. And that could be another boost to his fortunes. Um, uh, that's uh, absolutely true. And it's interesting what some of the more strategically minded uh, have always said about this conflict, right? Russia always starts its wars badly, but eventually it's willing to make the sacrifices uh, in people and in equipment in order uh, and, the, and the brutality in which uh, to uh, succeed, even if uh, that necessarily didn't work in Afghanistan. And the reason it didn't work in Afghanistan is we were uh, very actively engaged over a long period of time uh, in that case. Um, Eugene, from a battlefield uh, situation, uh, 
uh, or from your battlefield assessment or capabilities assessment, what what were the things that have jumped out at you over the course uh, of uh, the last year that you think are uh, illustrative? Well, as you pointed out a moment ago, it's the brutality of uh, uh, of, of the Russian way of war and the extent to which basically Putin and his generals don't seem to care that they're losing thousands upon thousands of people. You know, Sam is probably better equipped to talk about Russian military strategy, but, you know, to someone who is basically a layperson that when it comes to uh, professional military analysis, I, I, I'm just struck by the extent to which the Russian generals don't care. And frankly, uh, average Russians don't seem to care. They've kind of blocked it out. So, uh, you know, and also the other piece is that, you know, we have long looked at um, Russian military capabilities, Russian military technology as something that is uh, backward and nowhere near as good as what we in the, West can, in the West can produce. And it turns out that that stuff actually works pretty well and they're able to adapt uh, and produce stuff in large numbers, large enough to, uh, to, to be dominant on the battlefield, as we're hearing lately. Sam, you, Sam you're probably better equipped to handle this question, but that's my takeaway. The, the one last thing I would say on this subject is that, you know, we talk about 21st century warfare. And 21st century warfare doesn't really look all that different in many respects uh, from, uh, you know, 1914, 1915 warfare. So, uh, there's a lot here for military strategists to really digest. Uh, I'm not someone who really is well versed on in, in, in these issues. I'm gonna I'm gonna get to the geo strategy with you uh, in 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 a second, Sam. But I mean, is this is this the year that the Russians actually demonstrated uh, better capabilities than we thought? You know, I had lunch with a friend uh, this week who was pointing out that actually, from a Ukrainian assessment. The, some of the Russians, uh, you know, they were saying that some of the new Russian capabilities are not just superior to our own, but pointed out that they're actually superior to some of the Western equipment and your equipment, uh, according to a friend who was quoting a Ukrainian uh, leader uh, telling him. From from your standpoint, was 23 sort of a demonstration year for Russian capabilities and what we should expect to see next year that could actually be better than we think? I think this is the year where Russian military showed uh, the fact that it could indeed adapt, not everywhere, certainly not every service. There's certainly a lot of problems and issues that still have to be overcome in the Russian military. But I think this is where I can sort of jump in and say this was also the year of the absolutely unprecedented volunteer level effort across the Russian military that often provided the necessary technology as well as some of the tactical knowledge to the Russian military right there at the front. This, again, was not uh, an even process. Uh, some volunteer efforts were certainly more impactful than others. But, for example, practically all FPV drones operated at the front right now by the Russians are supplied by volunteer organizations, whether these volunteer organizations are funded by uh, some of the regional governments or with regular um, citizen donations uh, or, or uh, wealthy individuals, that's less relevant than the fact that uh, Russia today, for example, operates tens of thousands of FPV drones a month and uh, it purchases other 
uh, UAVs and other necessary equipment for the front. And the military is not standing in the way. The military is in many ways facilitating this effort. Uh, and so, again, this is truly unprecedented because this was a bottom-up approach that the Russian military isn't famous for. This is what Ukraine was famous for last year right. and earlier this year. But the Russians took lessons from Ukrainian approaches. They have adapted and uh, they have increased the production of certain systems. And uh, again, they're learning very quickly at the tactical level. It's an uneven process and it's a process that's not integrated wholly and holistically across the MOD or Russian Ministry of Defense just yet. But slowly but surely, some of the tactics are actually becoming quite widespread. So along with World War One and World War II style meat assaults, where thousands of soldiers died, there's also this emergence of this new high-tech uh, elements of the Russian military with not just UAVs, but also counter UAVs, electronic warfare equipment at the right. tactical operational levels. A lot of back and forth between the soldiers and the volunteers on what is necessary and the Russian military that is appearing to listen to some of its sort of more vocal uh, supporters, as well as some of the more vocal voices at the front, which are discussing different approaches to countering Ukrainian advantages in uh, more um, high tech equipment and, and Western provided equipment. Eugene, let me uh, bring you uh, back to sort of a broader uh, strategic uh, question. Uh, there was a great article in the New York Times, I think it was over the weekend, uh, about Western businesses divesting from Russia and how that effort has completely backfired. Uh, indeed, uh, the government or its cronies have ended up owning these entire operations at cut rate prices, in some cases having to pay the Russians for the right uh, to get out of uh, Russia. And it actually allowed Putin to shore up uh, support among his oligarchs, right? Because the whole thing was, well, as long as we sanction the oligarchs, the oligarchs will turn on Putin and the whole house of cards will collapse. And that's not at all what happened. Um, how have we done, right? So if if we could say that some of the strategic moves we made in 22 were better, a lot of it was Ukraine fighting for its existence. How did we do in 2023 in terms of our broader strategy uh, the efficacy of sanctions, the efficacy of all the other maneuvers we made. How, how do you gauge how we did in 23 compared to how we did in 22? And how does that have to shape how we need to be thinking about 24 in your standpoint, from your standpoint? Well, I think it's all part of the same picture. And I think 2023 on the whole was, uh, was good. Um, but again, I go back to what I said previously that, you know, sanctions are not a one-time deal. It has to be a continuous process whereby we re refine, uh, improve, go back and uh, revise our expectations and our assessments of what the Russian economy is capable of doing. Uh, we, we, we close loopholes. So enforcement becomes the critical piece of it. And on that, you know, it's 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 a never-ending process. And I think we're doing okay. We could be doing more. And I expect that we'll be doing more in in in, in the next year. So I don't buy the argument, oh look, the sanctions have backfired. I think the sanctions have not backfired. Uh, it's 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 just a normal uh, process of uh, you know call it cat and mouse game. Uh, right. on the whole I think we have um, done okay. Well, we, I would say the Biden administration has done okay. Uh, well, you know, maintaining the coalition, but 
uh, as I see it, the biggest problem really is here at home, and it's our domestic politics that increasingly right. stands in the way of our more effective policy. And here, I believe the Biden administration can only do so and so much, given the state of our divided, uh, you know, political scene. Um, the election is not going to help a whole lot next year. Um, that's where I think there'll be some challenges. Uh, you know, speaking from you know my pop uh, political uh, commentator armchair. <laughs> uh, but uh, look, uh, we all understand what's happening here, and uh, I, I, on the whole, give the Biden administration high marks, and I give the Europeans high marks. Uh, but we also cannot underestimate Putin and the fact that um, he does have friends in important places like Viktor Orban. Uh, and the fact that also uh, in a lot of other parts of the world, right. this war is not uh, something that is exceptional. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a war that's happening uh, you know, far away, does not affect their immediate interests directly. And it's very difficult right. to convince these leaders in countries that they need to stand tall with, with Ukraine. They've got their own problems. So it's just an inherent problem of maintaining uh, these kind of broad coalitions. Right. Uh, and African diplomats point out, look, I mean, we have all sorts of tragedies that are happening in Africa, and you guys don't take nearly the interest in this. So, you know, our, our attitude is, is, is somewhat less heated about how we should uh, take this uh, uh, crisis and indeed, especially if they're getting help uh, from Russians. And I want to get to that uh, in, in just a second. But Sam, you know, we talk a lot about sanctions. And as Eugene pointed out, sanctions are effective if you're continuously adjusting them. And it's not abundantly clear whether we're adjusting them as much as we should be adjusting them. And a lot of our allies and partners are helping circumvent those sanctions. Um, have you seen any progress in how Western nations are plugging up, you know, are, are we doing a better job in 2023 to stop the flow of technology to Russia that is being translated into these advanced uh, weapons, whether it's, you know, laptop computers going from the West via one or two other countries or, you know, uh, appliances going through Turkey, you know, or Uzbekistan or anywhere else uh, over into Russia that become weapons. Are, are we doing any better in 2023 from your standpoint? I think we are. And I think this year we were able to map out a lot of these pathways, a lot of these schemes that the Russian government and its military are using. But as you and Eugene have just pointed out, a lot of these components that we're talking about are strictly commercial components. And they're very difficult to regulate because they're everywhere. They're ubiquitous. They're sold in all manner of types and ways and, and places. And uh, a crafty military can actually incorporate some of that into their weapons and systems. We also talked, you and I, about the fact that not all commercial components are actually applicable for military systems because military systems are designed to handle a very different type of stress on the battlefield than your typical commercial product. And so some of these components are adaptable, others are not. But once again, it's mapping out how Russia gets its hands on a lot of these components is very, very important. But also... Obviously, there's a lot of concern because, as Eugene has pointed out, this war is not important for all countries. And it seems like every week there's yet another expose and analysis of how Russia circumvents the sanctions, you know, with direct parties, indirect parties, willing partners and willing partners, 
knowingly or unknowingly. And a lot of these components just uh, just get into the country. It's very difficult to enforce these sanctions if Russia still has a free trade with China, Iran, with Turkey, with India, with the global south, with Latin America, Southeast Asia. And so this indicates the scope and uh, and you know the size of this task, which is quite enormous, and I, I would even say even unprecedented. Russia is also learning from Iran. This year, Russians and Iranians held an actual summit on trade relations, where Iranians were educated, uh, ed- educating Russians how to do business in their own country. And an Iranian official remarked that they're willing to share sanctions-busting lessons with Russia, so Russia doesn't take a decade to learn how to do it. They can just take up to a year. So all of this adds to the challenges of uh, working against a country like Russia with all of the alliances and relationships that Russia has around the world. Uh, and if and, I just uh, may jump in. Go ahead, Eugene. Uh, I think we also should give some credit uh, to Mr. Lavrov, the foreign minister and Russian diplomacy. Uh, they've been agile. Uh, they've been quite skilled at courting um, all kinds of partners. Uh, they've been indiscriminate in pursuing partners, and it really pays off, has paid off uh, in, in, in ways that we have often overlooked. You know, uh, I think it's Woody Allen said that 90% of success in life is showing up. Let's just say it was Woody Allen. And he's been showing up in a lot of places. does not necessarily mean that right. he brings a lot of gifts with him, but just showing respect and showing that, you know, they care or pretend to care at least really matters for a lot of these countries and governments. Um, let me uh, take you uh, and, uh, you know, I, I was going to go to you, uh, Eugene, and, and ask, are, are we doing better? Um, we're increasingly seeing China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea aligned, uh, whether, you know, it's the Koreans uh, and the Iranians shipping weapons, the Chinese showing support, buying Russian oil, et cetera. Um, are, do you see any progress to the United States and its allies actually getting a more cohesive strategy where we don't look at each of these countries in isolation, but increasingly look at them as a conjoined allied threat? Do you see any progress? Have you seen any progress on that in 2023? You know, call it yet another axis of evil, right? It brings back memories. Um, well, no, not yet. I don't think so. I think we still tend to see Iran's role much more in the context of the Middle East, in the war in Gaza. Uh, And we tend to see North Korea more in the context of the Korean Peninsula and the kinds of, uh, you know, threats that uh, North Korea's nuclear program may pose to us and our our allies and partners. Uh, So, no, I don't think we're there yet. Sam, is there anything you want to add uh, to that briefly before we go to uh, Russia's uh, near abroad? Well, I think it's important to uh, recognize that, um, as Eugene said, each of these countries has its own um, has its own sort of goal and geopolitical sphere of influence. Uh, but at the same time, it's also important to recognize that Russia maintains a lengthy and 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 a rather historical relationship with all of these states. And so severing that relationship in one form or another is difficult if um, Russia and North Korea, Russia and China, Russia, Iran have cooperated uh, for many, many decades and have established a lot of key relationships, which today Russia is capitalizing on. 
Um, I want to uh, take you guys uh, to a question that you helped us uh, discuss in uh, 2020 uh, and since then, uh, which is uh, Russia's uh, r reducing or diminishing uh, influence in its own near abroad. Uh, Russia's influence was diminished uh, during and after the Azeri-Turkish War uh, with Israeli help uh, on Armenia. Um, to punish the Pashinyan government, Russia has repeatedly refused to make good its treaty obligations, uh, stuff that Yerevan depended on that, well, at least uh, Armenia proper, you know, the Russians will help defend Armenia proper. That turned out not to be the case. And just this September, uh, after a demonstration of um, military capability, prompted effectively the ethnic cleansing of Armenians from Nagorno-Karabakh, all 130,000 uh, have left uh, the, the historic enclave. How is Russian influence actually changing in its near abroad? And what does this episode sort of uh, tell us ultimately, Eugene? Well, on this episode in particular, um, my theory of the case is that basically Putin and Aliyev, the hereditary ruler, now we can say of Azerbaijan, uh, have basically cut a drug deal. Um, and, it, and, and it's a win-win, as we used to say back in the old days, where Aliyev is helping Putin avoid sanctions, and he's punishing this upstart democratic ruler, leader, sorry, of Armenia, Nikol Pashinyan, and he's teaching him a lesson in, uh, you know, if you're going to disrespect Vladimir Putin uh, by joining the International Criminal Court, by... Uh, neglecting uh, 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 your responsibility to attend various Russian-presided, Russian-led uh, forums, uh, there'll be a price to pay. Uh, and in exchange, Putin is basically looking the other way and letting, you know, um, Aliyev, uh, you know, destroy what was left of the Armenian autonomy or quasi-independent, unrecognized uh, state uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, and for the time being, as I said, it's a win-win. Um, you know, Aliyev uh, has basically embraced Putin. Uh, he visited Moscow, I believe, just the day before the, the start of the full-on offensive uh, in February of 2022, and they've maintained cordial relations since then. What's interesting is that Armenia continues to trade heavily with Russia based on the statistics that we've seen. It's become one of the important conduits for those goods that can no longer be imported from Europe or elsewhere. The same applies to uh, Georgia, uh, which obviously has a complicated relationship with Russia. And I would say that um, countries that for a long time had tried to put some distance between themselves and Russia are now actually engaged in a very dynamic economic relationship with Russia. So there's been, call it a rebalancing. Russia depends on these uh, channels, uh, new supply chains, so to speak. Um, it's, 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 it's a win, win for, for all of them. But in, in the particular case of the South Caucasus, um, I think there is a uh, uh, kind of a coalition of three uh, dictators or collusion of three dic aspiring dictators, one real dictator, uh, you know, Putin, uh, Ali perhaps qualifies to an Erdogan, uh, uh, where, uh, you know, they're all capitalizing on, on, on this strategy and, uh, uh, and deriving their benefits from uh, collateral benefits from, from the war in Ukraine. And, and so you don't see it as a diminution of influence. You just see it as 
going out of their way to punish one state as opposed to it being sort of a broader collapse of their influence, which is how it was, you know, there was there was a sense on how we were perceiving this over the last couple of years. Uh, not necessarily. I think it's if, if there is some opening for countries like Turkey, for example, to, to step in. Uh, which uh, has only manifested itself, obviously, in the case of Azerbaijan so far. Right. And that relationship has long been very tight, as we know. Uh, so if there is any kind of opening for, for Turkey, perhaps, then it's not a permanent condition. I don't think that uh, Russia is going to permanently step away from the South Caucasus and just say, OK, we've lost that region. Right. Uh, Sam, uh, your thoughts as we uh, as we end uh, the program on this, uh, given that you've tracked very carefully uh, the kind of capabilities demonstrated. Right. And the Nagorno-Karabakh war uh, has become something that everybody's been studying for uh, for lessons when it comes to the deployment of unmanned capabilities. Anyway, what's what's your sense on 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 the narrative and the dynamic going forward? Well, I think the 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh war has demonstrated that a country that fails to prepare for new weapons, new systems, new tactics, and adopts a, a very stationary sort of laissez-faire tactical um, position with respect to its troops uh, will be on the losing side. And certainly Azerbaijan has made it very clear that a drone-enabled, a UAV-enabled force is quite a capable one, as long as the other side has weak defenses and hasn't really prepared for it. And the Nagorno-Karabakh war has also demonstrated that um, a country with adequate electronic warfare and counter UAV defenses can actually do quite well. What we're seeing right now in Ukraine is a stalemate of sorts because both sides are fielding significant number of tactical and operational electronic warfare systems to go after each other's drones. So certainly uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh war was the bellwether for what can happen if nations fail to prepare or take into consideration new weapons, tactics, and systems. And some of those lessons, as I mentioned, are playing out in Ukraine right now. At the same time, um, the uh, the Caucasus um, geopolitics are, are rather complicated, and um, uh, it, it is unlikely that Russia would simply step away from it at the moment. And so um, Russia may be back in one form or another, considering how important that entire region is to Russia's geopolitical and economic security. Any last thoughts on any uh, last uh, items or stories that you guys found interesting in 2023? The key story is, uh, you know, the the diminution, the, the weakening of support for Ukraine in, in the United States and the pivotal role uh, it is likely to play. Uh, I believe it is certain to play, let me rephrase that, uh, in 2024, because um, that will be absolutely crucial to both Ukraine's su su success and to maintaining a coherent Western coalition supporting it. Sam? Well, in 2024, I'll be watching uh, for the uh, ev evolution of and um, any, uh, any changes in the relationship between the official uh, Russian military and its numerous volunteer efforts and what has resulted so far and what can actually happen going forward with lots of technologies, tactics, systems, and uh, and other concepts that were facilitated by these volunteer organizations. I'll certainly be watching for the same patterns on the Ukrainian side as well. As I've indicated, this is quite unprecedented for large-scale uh, post-Soviet militaries 
Uh, and so uh, how the, how this relationship will go forward may actually shape the battlefield in one form or another. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Hope you guys have uh, terrific uh, holidays, a very happy new year, and looking forward uh, to a happy, healthy, prosperous 2024 and having you guys participate uh, on the program on a regular basis. Thanks so very much again. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Vago, and the same to you and your listeners. Thanks, Vago. And thanks to all of you for joining us and to all of our sponsors for their generous support that makes this program possible every day. We look forward to having you join us again tomorrow. Until then, have a great day.